Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is February 27th of 2014, and tonight our guest is Lynn Paltrow, J.D. She's the Executive Director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Uh, We're going to bring her on in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Lynn Paltrow, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Lynn? I'm very well, thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about your organization. What does National Advocates for Pregnant Women do? We are a legal advocacy, public education, and organizing organization. Uh, Our mission is to ensure uh, the civil and human rights of women, focusing particularly on pregnant women, and especially on pregnant women most vulnerable to state control and punishment, uh, low-income women, women of color, and drug-using women. Well, we're kind of interested in talking about drug-using women in particular on the show this evening because it's uh, kind of the topic of our show. Um, so tell us a little bit about your work with drug-using women. Well, I started my career uh, defending the right to choose abortion uh, and began to get cases where anti-abortion arguments were being used to hurt women who had no intention of ending their pregnancies. Uh, Among those women was a woman who was uh, critically ill um, at 27 years old and 25 weeks pregnant, and somebody decided that the fetus inside of her could be treated as a separate person, had a right to life, had a right to be rescued, and obtained a court order forcing this young woman to undergo cesarean surgery that she had refused and ended up um, basically killing her and the baby. Uh, We challenged that and got that that decision reversed. Um, I also started getting cases where women who uh, came pregnant, continued those pregnancies, and were accused of using an illegal drug were being charged with a variety of crimes based on a, a, essentially a, a theory of law that comes out of the American anti-abortion movement that you can view fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses as if they're entirely legal separate from the woman, and that if she does something that people believe is risky, not even actually harmful, but only risks harm, she can be charged with such crimes as child endangerment, delivery of drugs to a minor through the, through the umbilical cord, and if she happens to suffer a pregnancy loss, uh, which often happen in pregnancy and are not generally caused by the use of any of the criminalized drugs, uh, she would be charged with murder. Um, we started, I started getting those cases uh, and really had to be, become uh, knowledgeable about the various risks of harms of various substances and, um, and the really underlying issues in these prosecutions. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what kind of harms do various substances do to, you know, unborn babies? We had a huge hoopla, I remember, a few decades ago about crack babies and how we were going to have all these crack babies. And, uh, 
that didn't quite materialize. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, what I can tell you, I think it's always better to have uh, a scientist and a researcher on. I think they they rightfully have the most credibility. So I urge people to uh, to do some research. Um, but what happened was uh, during the 1970s, cocaine was wildly widely used throughout the country uh, at truly epidemic rates, according to epidemiologists. And we have to ask, where are all the cocaine babies from that era? Some of them may be listening to this show. It was only when people figured out how to make cocaine into crack, a, a less expensive smokable form, it has the same, it's the same substance, and sell it in low-income African-American communities that it became uh, a widely held belief that uh, particularly low-income African-American women smoking crack were going to cause permanent irreparable harm to their babies. Uh, this wasn't a different drug than white people were using in the 1970s, but because we have a long history, starting with slavery, as Dorothy Roberts in her book, Killing the Black Body, so beautifully explains, of devaluing black motherhood. One has to do that in order to make it possible to imagine taking babies away from their mothers and selling them away from them further into slavery. And, and, and a willingness to believe that certain mothers, particularly African-American mothers, care so little about their babies that they would do a drug that everybody knew caused horrible, permanent, permanent unfixable damage. But the truth was, you know, this was what the newspapers claimed. Um, there was a doctor who had done a study on something like 25 babies claiming that this drug was uniquely harmful. Um, but and, and newspapers ran all these stories, crack babies, uh, kid, their kids suffer. But if you read far enough down in the articles, if they ever bothered to interview an actual scientist, like Dr. Barry Zuckerman at Boston University, pediatrician, he said, you know, we actually don't have any research that says these kids are uniquely harmed or damaged in any particular way. We think these are really poverty babies. So you have this, this alarm, this willingness to jump to conclusions about drugs um, with no research support at the end of eight years of Reagan-era budget cuts in programs for the poor. Um, you have stories on the front page of the New York Times, a teacher saying, I can't say for sure it's crack, but I've never seen so many kids functioning at such low levels. Only there's no evidence, I think somebody actually researched that class, that a single kid in that class had been exposed prenatally to cocaine or anything else. But some of those kids had witnessed a family member who was murdered and uh, experienced other trauma. But since we don't want to really find out what's going on for poor children or their mothers, we can blame the drugs. Uh, extensive subsequent long-term research by people like Dr. Deborah Frank, also at Boston University, um, have found and consistently say uh, that cocaine and other research similarly finds that none of the criminalized drugs are uniquely permanently damaging, especially harmful. They aren't good to use. It would be best if pregnant women could avoid lots of exposures and substances in our environment, but that the risks of harm to the extent that researchers have found them are subtle and similar to those of cigarette exposure. In fact, the research has found fewer 
associated harms with any of the criminalized drugs than with cigarettes, far fewer uh, than extreme alcohol use. Uh, and that has been very muddled, how, it, how the issue of pregnant women and alcohol use has been presented. It seems you have to use an extraordinary amount, probably also have malnutrition, uh, probably you or the, the fetus having some genetic predisposition. Um, and then there are all sorts of other things that far more women ha experience or are exposed to. So women with obesity, women with hypertension, um, women who don't have access to regular health care. Uh, there are far more uh, women uh, with those conditions and circumstances uh, with far more established risks of harm than any of the criminalized drugs. Only 4 to 5% of all pregnant women use any criminalized drug in the United States in study after study, and most of those women are using marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I read something somewhere um, about some work, I think it was on an American Indian reservation, where they were encouraging the women to drink less rather than, you know, say you you have to absolutely abstain or you're totally a bad person and that they had much more success when they encouraged um you know every positive change rather than saying you know unless you're perfectly abstinent you're perfectly worthless so uh, taking a harm reduction approach really seemed to have much greater effects in reducing the fetal alcohol syndrome in this uh, particular circumstance well, i don't want to run too far afield with that but um Oh, that, no, that, I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. Go ahead. the U.S. has, an ex, you know, for a, uh, the richest country in the world, has a very high infant mortality uh, rate, particularly among African-American women. And it is absolutely not because they use more drugs than other people. They don't. They actually smoke fewer, less, fewer African-American women smoke cigarettes. Um, the theory, and there are studies that control for race and economics, so that African-American women, even who are much better off financially, have disproportionately high infant mortality and pregnancy loss rates. And the theory is stress. The theory is the constant, unrelenting racism they face every day, every hour of every day of their lives, um, all kinds of uh, stress that results, and that treating women... There is a, a community in Wisconsin, there's a midwife in Florida that actually treating people respectfully, not shaming them, not telling them they're bad if they can't achieve total abstinence or, over, uh, you know, or lose the weight they're supposed to or whatever it is that somebody's telling them they're bad for not doing, that simply respecting them as human beings, treating them nicely, apparently has the biggest impact on reducing infant mortality and pregnancy loss rates. Let's talk a little bit about opiates. Um, uh, if mothers, if pregnant mothers are addicted to opiates, are their babies born addicted? There, there are, there's an open, uh, let me go, can I just go back? I want to just talk about the, the yes, cocaine please. for one minute. In terms of sure, what people are willing to assume, uh, if a child is born with some problem, and children are born with problems, um, and there happens to be a positive drug test for any drug, there is a willingness based on 40 years of the drug war, based on race and drug war propaganda, a willingness to assume that the drug test caused, the drug caused the problem. 
Um, if you go to our website, which is www.advocatesforpregnantwomen.org, um, you will find uh, a fact sheet and also a video, uh, Project Prevention Mothers and Children Speak Out. You can also find that on YouTube. Uh, it's a, a mothers uh, and their children, mothers who used cocaine and other drugs while they were pregnant and their children, addressing many of the assumptions and myths. One of the kids in this video uh, is now college, is college age and has a full scholarship to an elite private college. And I just have to say, nobody says, oh, it must have been because of the cocaine her mother took. <laughs> there's a willingness to leap to a causal conclusion if there's any harm and an unwillingness to, to, to do the same leap if the kid is fantastic and wonderful. And that's not science, that's prejudice. So I just I wanted to put that out there. Um, leading experts. Uh, in the fields of addiction and pediatrics and maternal fetal health all say it is never appropriate to call a newborn addicted. There is no such thing as an addicted newborn to any substance. Uh, opiates are the one substance where newborns may experience a withdrawal, certain symptoms uh, relating to withdrawing from the opiates they've been exposed to or uh, any, any drug that has, uh, comes out of opiates, including the treatment for opiate addictions like methadone and suboxone. Calling those babies addicted is completely inappropriate because it's a, that's a word that has to do with, you know, social behaviors and uh, uh, not being able to control certain things. Babies aren't born addicted. They're born with certain, uh, may be born with certain um, symptoms as a result of the exposure. These are symptoms that are transitory. They're treatable, and again, they are much less likely to appear and to appear with much less severity if the pregnant woman is treated with love and respect. There are studies that say if you let moms who've been on opiates or have been in methadone treatment hold their babies and have skin-to-skin -skin contact, if you let them breastfeed, it's actually better for these babies, um, the, the, the likelihood that they will have any symptoms of what's called neonatal abstinence syndrome, I'm not sure that's a very good label for it, but this treatable withdrawal sequence, um, is significantly reduced. But because of our prejudice, because of newspaper headlines screaming, you know, newborns addicted, most healthcare providers who have not been trained, uh, who have received virtually no training in addiction in their medical school careers, uh, hate these moms, think that the only thing you should do is take these babies away and put them in isolation in expensive neonatal intensive care units, NICUs, and then they turn around and say, look what these mothers are doing costing our society. But it's a poor, it's lack of medical, appropriate medical training and care, lack of respect for the women, lack of respect for their children that has led to policies in many hospitals of testing, reporting, removal of kids when that is the worst thing that can be done for them. There's a group called the Vermont Oxford Network that has been working with NICU doctors and nurses uh, to develop responses that are helpful, that promote maternal, fetal, and child health. And they have a video uh, based on the work of Dr. Ron Abrahamson in uh, Vancouver 
who has run for years programs for pregnant drug-using women, and he has terrific outcomes for the moms and for the babies. And it's mostly because he respects the women. He doesn't tell them they're bad. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't say, we're going to take your baby away. He doesn't threaten them. He works with them to find ways to reduce the harm of whatever they're doing and to be able to begin to parent and be parented because many of these women have had terribly difficult lives, very traumatic lives, and and rather than re-traumatizing them by calling them names and taking their babies away, they're given the support they need. And lo and behold, maternal, fetal, and child health improves um, and you have a much healthier environment, not only for the women and babies, but all for, also for the healthcare workers. There's one specific case that it's actually what uh, brought you to my attention was the Alicia, Alicia Beltran case in Wisconsin. Uh, tell me about that. Well, the background is um, there had been a couple of cases in Wisconsin uh, like ones I had been working on over the years. In one case, a pregnant woman was seeing, I think, a private OBGYN who suspected she had a problem with cocaine, and he drug tested her, and she was positive, and he basically said, you have to stop using cocaine, which if somebody's drug use is has, has become dependency or addiction, or if the drug use is helping them with the problem for which they have no other help, it isn't going to be like they're going to be able to instantly achieve abstinence. When she did not instantly achieve abstinence, as one wouldn't expect her to, and I think she became frightened and may have stopped coming in for prenatal care, which is far worse, um, the doctor violated her privacy, violated the trust between them, and contacted Wisconsin's Child Welfare Division and said, um, "This you should treat the fetus still inside of her as if it's already separate. It's a dependent child, and you should order the child into drug treatment. And that's what they did. Um, she fought that. Uh, it went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court said, look, this is not what our child welfare laws are were intended to do. It's not what they say they're for. It's not what they're actually for. They're not for empowering OBGYNs to tell their patients what to do, and if they don't do it, have them locked up. The response to that Supreme Court decision was to pass a law amending the state's children's code to add the term unborn child uh, over 300 times and to give the state authorities power to take into custody with virtually no due process, um, no you know, evidentiary proof requirements, any woman, uh, a law enforcement official or social worker, believes uh, is habitually using a con- lacks self-control and habitually uses a controlled substance. Um, in the case of Alicia Beltran, none of these terms are defined. Uh, they authorize police to take a woman into custody just on suspicion, um, and there's and there's absolutely no. Uh, connection between whatever is going on for this woman and whatever services she might actually want or need. Uh, There was an earlier case before Alicia Beltran, a woman went to a hospital. She had a two-year-old and a husband. She had become addicted to prescription opiates. She knew she had a problem. She voluntarily went to the hospital to ask for help. 
And at that hospital, while there were a group of doctors working to get her into a methadone treatment program, which is the recommended treatment for people with opiate addictions, particularly pregnant women, other people at the hospital said, oh, we have a pregnant drug-using woman. We have this law. They call a sheriff. A sheriff takes her out of the hospital where they're, they're setting up a plan for her, removes her to a, a psychiatric ward in a hospital two hours away where she is away from her two-year-old, away from her husband, where they do not give her any treatment for her addiction, where they put her on psych meds and never have her receive any prenatal care. So there's no hearing for this, no lawyer, nothing. She's just locked up. When she finally is taken to court and the judge says, um, well, okay, state, you want to keep her locked up. You think you have the right to do this. Give me a report on how her unborn child is doing. And they said, oh, we don't know. And it turns out they locked her up in an institution that provides no prenatal care. So I want to tell that story first as a point of saying, we think sometimes that if we give the state power to regulate individuals and control them, they will be able to make them be healthy or make them get good health care. But as we have seen over and over and over again, if you give the power to the state to do that, they, there's absolutely no guarantee that what they make you do is actually health care. And in this case, as in many others, all they, can, they did was make sure she got locked up, not that she got care that she needed. And eventually the judge had to let her out because doctors testified that her, even her continuing opiate use was less dangerous than locking her up, putting her on psych meds, and putting her into a state of absolute panic. In the Alicia Beltran case, you had a woman who you know, was just doing absolutely everything that people claim they want people who have drug problems to do. She developed a, some kind of a dependency on um, per, Percocet. Uh, this was before she became pregnant. She wasn't happy about that. She, she, she probably, you know, might, you know, she was, she was ashamed of herself, I think. Um, and she went through a period of withdrawal to get off the drug, and then began using um, Suboxone, which is like methadone. She wasn't getting it from a physician because she simply didn't have the health insurance to be able to afford a formalized treatment program. Um, she had become pregnant. Uh, but very early in the pregnancy, she decided she didn't want to stay on any kind of drugs, including a treatment uh, drug, Suboxone. By the time she was in about her, I don't know, 12th or 14 weeks and uh, was starting with a new doctor, she had already weaned herself off of Suboxone. So she was no longer using opiates. She was no longer using the medication for opiate uh, dependency. And she was seeking early prenatal care and being completely open and honest with her physician, as you would hope patients would be. Uh, and we don't exactly know why. Uh, we think, you know, out of lack of training, ignorance, the drug war that has made people think that they're groups of people who don't deserve to be treated like human beings, uh, they began in a very kind of panicked way saying, no, 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 you have to be in a medical supervised, uh, you know, maintenance treatment program. You have to go back on the Suboxone, basically. And she said, I'm not going back. On it. I just got myself off. I'm doing fine. And she goes home. The, a social worker goes to her house, and again, a social worker who is not a trained addiction specialist, who doesn't know her, tells her that if she doesn't immediately go, go into some treatment program that she demands a Suboxone treatment program, something bad's going to happen. 
I don't think that, uh, according to the affidavits in the case, that Alicia, it didn't make any sense that this person was suddenly at her door saying this. And a day later, she comes home, and there are, I think, three law enforcement officials, maybe three or five, definitely three at least, waiting for her. They arrest her, put handcuffs on her, take her to an emergency room for a forced medical exam, which is done. She's told that she's been arrested, that everything she says can and will be used against her in a court of law. So she's, of course, not going to be talking to anybody, including the doctor there. The doctor does as much of an exam as he can and checks everything out and says, she looks fine, baby looks fine. They take her to jail, they book her, they put her in leg shackles as well, and then take her to a courtroom where she appears before a judge where there's a lawyer already appointed for her 14-week fetus, a lawyer for the, the, the I guess, the uh, district attorney, the social worker who had come, and, and the judge. She has no lawyer. And according to the statute, she has no right to a lawyer at this proceeding. And without any representation, without ever addressing her or asking her a single question, and she's trying to say, wait a minute, how can you do this to me? Do you have a current drug test that says I'm, I'm even using drugs? And they don't answer her. And she says, she tries to articulate her human rights by saying, well, let me out of here. I'll have an abortion. Then you can't have me here. She didn't want an abortion. But that was her way of saying, how can you have me here in front of you like this? They don't talk to her. They don't answer her questions without a single expert. So the judge is listening to people who have absolutely no expertise. They don't mention that she's been examined and there's no indication that there's any problem, not that that would give them authority if there were, no problem. Um, and, and telling the judge that she needs to be in the Suboxone program and she refused and that's why they have to take her into custody. They order her into a 90-day residential treatment program. Uh, if she leaves it, she'll be arrested. It is hours from her home. Uh, and guess what? They do not provide Suboxone treatment. They also don't provide prenatal care or have any OBGYN care on premises. So she has to go two hours from her home, forcing her to lose her job. Uh, and according to experts uh, who filed affidavits in the case, finding absolutely no reason that this person needs to be in a residential drug treatment program, taking space away from a woman who might actually need it. Um, the family contacted us and working with uh, her lead counsel, uh, Linda Pence in um, um, I'm sorry, in Wisconsin, uh, and uh, um, I'm sorry, I think I'm confusing lawyers and cases, and the NYU Reproductive Justice Clinic, we filed a petition for uh, habeas corpus in U.S. federal court and challenged the constitutionality of the law, which deprived her of her right to counsel, her right to physical liberty, her right to medical privacy, her right to medical decision-making, her right to equal protection of the laws, uh, and many other uh, well-recognized constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. You know, I see a lot of the problem here um, stems from the selling of addiction treatment and the selling of the idea of addiction as this chronic, incurable disease that no one ever, ever quits on their own and they have to have treatment or they have to have medication. And it's totally false. And all the research points out that the natural outcome of addiction is people eventually quit on their own. 
and it's the most common outcome. And yes, people quit addictions on their own all the time. Well, by the way, the, the lead counsel in the case is Linda Vanden in Wisconsin, um, who's just done a mm-hmm. tremendous job. Um, I, there's some very frightening uh, things about what what coerced treatment is in the United States of America. Um, one of the experts who looked at the case suggested in her affidavit that this was tantum, you know, that one would inv- might want to investigate Medicaid fraud if you saw women being put into, women like Lynn, Lisa, uh, Alicia Beltran being put into a program like this. Uh, I read a paper that, you know, many of the problems that people who are caught up in the child welfare and criminal justice system uh, are blamed on their drug use and the drug offenses are the reason they come into uh, they, that the, the excuse for their arrest. Uh, and these authors were pointing out, though, that these are people who are from communities that are being systematically torn apart through the application of criminal justice system, defunding schools, taking resources away from the community. And then they get into these systems and, and somebody says, okay, if you want your kid back, if you want to get out of jail, you have to go to treatment. But the other thing it's, it, is even, I think, more goes deeper than what you just said because the treatment that people are coerced into and required to go to on threat of never seeing their children again or spending more time incarcerated is not middle-class treatment, middle- and upper-class treatment because the treatment they're required to get, they must give up all confidentiality. That's part of the court order in these cases and the agreements. Well, one of the reasons treatment works is you trust the confidentiality of the person you're talking to. But if you're coerced and ordered into treatment, you don't get that. And you also don't get the right to say, you know what, this counselor is not very good or they're not helping me. I need to go to a different one. If you do that, that is seen as noncompliance and you may never get your child back. You may not be able to stay out of jail. These are, uh, these are entirely separate systems that seem to me to have far more to do with social control of certain populations, uh, government control and punishment of certain populations than it has to do with recovery. There are certainly people who have gone to ver- a variety of kinds of treatments whether, and programs from AA to intensive that helped them. And we have to honor the fact that there have been there are a variety of treatments that work for a variety of people, but the idea that the state should be allowed to mandate that treatment and take away your civil fundamental civil rights if you don't obtain it and it's really it's faux treatment it's not even treatment um, is something that we should be very concerned about, and it is like private prisons. Uh, an industry that depends on government coercion of certain populations. And I say certain populations. You know, I live in a a neighborhood in Greenwich Village, New York, where people are using all kinds of drugs, prescription drugs, prescription drugs that they give to each other. They buy pot. They smoke pot. We don't get stopped and frisked. People on my block do not get stopped and frisked. They don't, we don't have police patrolling our hallways. We don't have child welfare sniffing at our doors and threatening to take our kids away, making us pee in cups and take our kids away. Mm-hmm. So it's not that 
the other communities that that there's less drug use. It's that certain communities are targeted for control and punishment, and others are not. Oh, that's absolutely true. And you know, we see if we look at the prison population and how many what huge numbers of people are incarcerated in the U.S., what racial disparity there is, and how it's it's all about drug offenses. That's right. You criminalize things that human beings normally do, and lo and behold, you can turn them into criminals. You criminalize alcohol, and law-abiding people who like to drink alcohol suddenly become criminals, and you know, organized crime becomes incentivized because it's a way to make you know, a significant amount of money. You prohibit people from having abortions, as was the case in the United States before 1973. Women need to and will always... Uh, seek to control their reproductive lives and protect their health and the health of the family they already have, they still got abortions, as many as a million a year in spite of prohibition. You prohibit people from taking drugs, certain drugs, uh, that they have used as a matter of culture, as a matter of relaxation, as a matter of whatever, and suddenly say it's criminalized, then you've turned perfectly law-abiding citizens into criminals. And then you only enforce those laws against people with dark skin uh, in certain places, and you have the, the kind of very um, discriminating, discriminatory um, system that we have right now. Now, before we leave the topic, I'm going to be a little bit critical of rehab. Uh, Ann Fletcher recently published a book called Inside Rehab, and although there are good evidence-based treatments out there, the majority of rehab programs don't use them, and the majority of rehabs, even the upper end, uh, high expensive ones, they don't use evidence-based effective treatment. Um, and once again, they don't beat the rate of spontaneous remission. Once again, we know most people they quit addictions on their own. Uh, rehabs really, most of them, there are exceptions, aren't very good. Well, I, I'm not an expert on that, and I, I defer to you, but I will say that it appears that there are, uh, and I don't have the statistics on this, but it appears that there are a growing number of programs in the U.S. that are really purely religious-based, that hold themselves out as drug rehabs, uh, and get federal U.S. dollars to do that. We recently have a, a woman who is in one of those programs in a desperate attempt to get a kid back. Um, this is somebody who is working very hard to deal with a, an opiate problem, Was in um, uh, got herself into methadone treatment, and then gave birth. The baby's taken away. Uh, that's been happened, by the way, in New Jersey, uh, the, a lower court and the Department of Child, Child uh, I don't know what it's called, the Division of Youth and Family Services has taken the position that a pregnant woman who obtains state and federally medically recommended and supervised methadone treatment is a child abuser um, because there is a, a small risk that the child will be born, there is a risk that the child will be born with ne treatable neonatal abstinence syndrome, a quote-unquote harm, and therefore she's a child abuser. So you have women in this country being punished for obtaining the treatment that their own state recommends and gets funding for. In the meantime, the, woman I, the other woman I was mentioning in Tennessee um, is in a treatment program that, as far as she can tell, is only about uh, religion and uh, following Christ's teaching and participating in prayer meetings. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's a lot like my treatment program where it was all 12-step and I was told I was powerless and needed to surrender to a higher power and ask God to cure my disease. Um, you know, buprenorphine and methadone are excellent evidence-based treatments. We have great evidence for their effectiveness. What is so bizarre in the case of the woman in Wisconsin, uh, Alicia Beltran, is... You know, buprenorphine is an opioid. It is addictive. If you can do without any opioids, you're a lot better off than, you know, relying on one. So why was the doctor trying to put her on an addictive opioid? I mean, it is great because it gets you away from heroin. It maintains you. um, It makes you able to work. I think it's a great treatment. But if you don't need it, it's, it's not the thing you want to be doing. Well, two things. I will say I hope you'll invite Dr. Robert Newman onto the show. I think he would challenge you on calling um, methadone and buprenorphine addictive. Um, he would disagree. Um, oh, that's not, that, I'm sorry. That, <laughs> I'm sorry. i, I got to apologize for that term. I mean, they, they lead to physical dependence, which is very different from addiction. I'm not even sure he would say that. But So we, you should have him on, but I, 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 it would be an interesting conversation. Um, but the thing you have to understand is that um, the Alicia Beltran case and the focus on pregnant women and mothers and parents is, is, is really an intersectional issue in the United States because as um, a New Republic reporter uh, noted in the Alicia Beltran case, by the time this, the law in Wisconsin that was passed that allowed them to do this service was called the cocaine mom law. It was supposedly a response to the extreme problems of, of pregnant women using cocaine. Only by the time the law was passed, as this terrific new Republic article points out, uh, the myth of unique, uh, particularly dangerous harms for cocaine had been exposed. The research said, Dr. Deborah Frank's research and others said, you know, it's not a good substance to use, but it is not uniquely harmful. It, is, it does not even uh, come up in the studies with as many uh, associated harms as cigarette smoking. And so the, they used the drug war to pass legislation that enshrined in law the idea that a fertilized egg is an unborn child and that the state may deprive women from the minute they're carrying a fertilized egg. Uh, They may subject them to separate and unequal laws that allows them to be locked up without any due process of law uh, in treatment programs that are inappropriate, that deprive them of their right to get, keep employed and everything else. And so it was a, a very cynical, I think, use of the drug war and prejudices and misinformation about it uh, that did advance the drug war to women's wombs, but also used the drug war to establish in one more place in the United States, in, in U.S. law, or Wisconsin's law at least, the notion that the state may deprive women of their personhood based on the claim that they're protecting fertilized eggs, embryos, or fetuses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that's really scary about all this is, you know, pregnant women might be too afraid to protect their safety by accessing programs like needle exchange. And, you know, um, Getting HIV is a lot worse than uh, shooting some heroin or any other drug, you know. Well, what what we know, and again, I mean, it, it is actually an extremely conservative position. Every leading medical group to address the issue of um, 
of pregnant women and drug use has said, do not threaten women with arrest. And the reason, one of the reasons for that is studies show again and again that even if a woman can't overcome her drug problem or, you know, deal with whatever physical or uh, situational problem she has, if she stays connected to a, a healthcare community and people she trusts, she's likely to be able to have a healthy birth outcome. But if you deter women from seeking care, if you frighten them away, you're actually increasing risks to the unborn and born. Uh, you're increasing risks to maternal, fetal, and child health. So the kind of groups I'm talking about that oppose these punitive approaches are the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, the American uh, Academy of um, Addiction Medicine, and so forth. They, it goes on and on. And it's, it's not because they're defending the rights of women to use drugs. It's because they are defending science and logic and their own their observation that if you want people to stay engaged in the healthcare system and you actually care about healthy babies, you don't threaten women either with arrest or with the presumption that they can't parent. That's the other thing. You cannot tell from a drug test whether somebody can parent. And yet, particularly for poor people in all kinds of places across the country, child welfare interventions are brought based on nothing more than a positive drug test. Uh, a drug test only tells you that somebody's used a drug within a particular period of time. It doesn't even tell you if they have a dependency or an addiction problem. Uh, most people who are addicted are employed. Uh, there actually are no studies that say drug use causes bad parenting. Uh, and the, the studies that claim that parental drug use is associated with bad parenting actually are not studies. They're opinion surveys. They are junk social science. Uh, and unfortunately, they have not been uh, adequately challenged. Those, those myths have not been adequately challenged. And you have a great deal of harm being done. A committee of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is so clear that threats against pregnant women are bad for maternal, fetal, and child health that they really are calling on doctors who live in states where there are mandatory reporting laws to challenge those laws that it is so clearly bad for pregnant women and babies that they are talking about doctors having an obligation to challenge those, uh, those testing and reporting requirements in the states where they exist. Yeah, you just brought to mind another story that I read uh, some months ago about um, the, parent, uh, the parents were using marijuana and the child was taken away because of that, placed in foster care, and, of course, was killed in, fo in their foster home by their foster parents. Uh, and it is so insane to take away children for drug use when there's no violence or there's no harm to the child. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm, uh, part of what people don't understand, I mean, I... I we live in, many of us live in such insular communities that we're not called upon each day to think about the fact that we live in a country with two million incarcerated people and something like four to six million on probation and parole. Um, I recently watched the, the movie The Remains of the Day, 
in which uh, a, an elite British person is sort of in cahoots with the, the growing uh, German Nazi party, and they're talking, and, the, and a representative uh, of the Nazi party says, you know, you have prisons, we have concentration camps, what's the difference? Um, and increasingly we have private prisons, private for-profit prisons holding people, um, uh, and, and we think, oh, well, it, they must be there because they're really guilty when they haven't been adequately represented, where there are mandatory uh, minimums and puts them in jail. In the child welfare system, there, you don't even have a right to a lawyer uh, at the early stages. Uh, the Supreme Court has said at the point at which they are threatening to actually terminate parental rights, you may be entitled to counsel. But at the early stages, in many states, there is no constitutional right to counsel. Some states provide it. And in the early stages, which can be go on for years, in which they say, if you don't do this, if you don't go to treatment, if you don't go to counseling, if you don't go to parenting classes, if you don't pee in a cup every week, we, you'll never get your kid back. Often there are no lawyers. And even when there are lawyers, what we have found is that it's a field that it doesn't occur to them that this actually is one that requires science. That there's an interesting case uh, in which a corporation was sued, uh, Merrill Dow, by children who were born with severe limb defects, malformed arms and legs, and their lawsuit said it was because their mother had take, mothers had been given a pharmaceutical drug called Bendectin, well, Merrill Dow got all of its lawyers together and it said, look, this case shouldn't even get to trial because the so-called scientist and science you have that claims Bendectin caused these limb defects is, is not real science. It hasn't been peer-reviewed. It hasn't been studied enough. There are lots of things that can cause limb defects. There's no way to, to single out Bendect. And, of course, the, they won. The case never even got to trial. And that was just that would have cost them money. It wouldn't have put them in jail. It wouldn't have taken away the corporate owner's children. But uh, in Brooklyn, New York, Parents who use marijuana have their children taken away. You know, people have been using, parents and pregnant women have been using marijuana for centuries. Uh, just common practice and knowledge plus research makes clear that it does not turn them into bad parents. Uh, people write articles, an op-ed on the New York Times saying, makes me a better father to be able to have, be a little bit stoned when I'm trying to play with my kids. And yet, if you are low income, um, and they put the social worker or the caseworker on the stand who says, you know, here's all the proof we need. They test positive for marijuana. When finally lawyers started putting real experts on, like Dr. Carl Hart, who has studied human subjects after they've smoked marijuana, he said, this isn't science. You know, people, I've looked at this person's record, and I've done studies. People who have smoked some marijuana, just like people who have had some wine at dinner, are still capable of taking care of their kids. They're still capable of calling 911 if something's wrong. You cannot treat evidence of alcohol or any, any other use as evidence of child abuse. If you show me that these parents really have harmed their children, if you show me these parents really are not paying attention to the children, fine. But you cannot use a positive drug test or the knowledge that somebody uses drugs as a substitute for what child welfare laws are supposed to do, which is protect children from harm, not from parents who do things we may not approve of. Well, that's absolutely, that is absolutely true. Um, 
I've, I've actually covered a lot of the topics that I wanted to cover tonight, so I'm going to open it up to you if there's anything that you want to talk about in particular that you haven't covered. Um, uh, I think we've done a, a, a good job. Um, there is a, are a lot of resources on our website, uh, www.advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. There's also a new organization called the Family uh, Law and Cannabis Alliance, FLICA, uh, that is putting together uh, information, resources, uh, and a network for families uh, who are being charged with civil child abuse uh, because they smoke or use cannabis. And that's another very good resource for people. Okay. I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Lynn Peltrow. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And everyone, we'll be back next week with another show. We'll see you all then. So good night.